What's going on, everyone? This is episode 8 of Raw Talk, where scientists talk and we listen. Today, we highlight another stream here at the Institute of Medical Science, the Master of Science in Biomedical Communications, a professional graduate program that brings scientific artists and artistic scientists together. And who better to tell us about the program than Dr. Jody Jenkinson, who was once a student and is now assistant professor in biomedical communications at the University of Toronto. Dr. Jenkinson is passionate about visual communication and has combined her two loves, education and fine art, to enhance learning in the life sciences. In our conversation, she tells us how much goes into scientific visualization beyond just artistic ability and tells us her idea for a citation framework for directly linking the science to the visuals. If you like what you're hearing so far or would like to give some feedback, leave a comment on our episode page or let us know what you think on social media. All right, this episode goes out to all the scientists who put a lot of time into their presentation figures. Enjoy. So we were wondering on the way here, are we truly visual learners? Some of us are. It's interesting, though, when I, when I meet the occasional textual learner, I often find as though I'm, I'm in the presence of a very rare species. I think for the most part, people are visual learners and, and becoming increasingly so. And that way of that, that mode of learning has kind of been your life's work in a way. Oh, absolutely. And I, and I think it's because I myself am a visual learner. You know, from childhood, I always drew images rather than taking notes and in order to encode information. Right. Yeah. Another question, actually. What's the, what's the difference between a medical illustrator and a biomedical communicator? Or do those go hand in hand? Uh, a rose by any other name would still smell as sweet. <laughs> <laughs> um, they're essentially the same. It, it just depends on the academic program that a student is enrolled in. Although I will say that some of the programs are more oriented toward traditional illustration, whereas our program is focused more on um, visualization strategies that incorporate a lot of different emergent technologies. That's the BMC program? Yeah, the BMC program. Can you tell us about that? Absolutely. So the BMC program, it, it has its um, history in medical illustration. Uh, back in the 1940s, a group of illustrators worked on illustrating specimens, at which are now housed in Grant's Museum in the Medical Sciences Building. And from that arose a certificate program for medical illustrators. Uh, it, the very first program of medical illustration was founded at Johns Hopkins University by a man named Max Bradle. And, and everyone seems to have descended from that. So the U of T program as a degree program has been around since the late 1960s and then became a, a master's program in the mid-1990s. And as I say, it, it has its origin in medical illustration, but it's evolved so much from there. You know, everything from simulations to haptic displays to linear narratives, animations, interactive technologies, the, the full gamut. You were part of the inaugural class when the BMC that's right. program I, became a master's. That's right. When I first enrolled in BMC, it was as a a Bachelor of Science student, and by the time I graduated, I had a Master's of Science. Nice. Yeah. And now you teach several courses in the program? That's right. So I, I went on to complete a, a PhD uh, in education in essentially applied psychology, and uh, I've gone on to teach in the program. I teach interactive, interactive technology, information and data visualization, and also um, research methods around designing for specific audiences. Yeah. So, and what's that like? Uh, 
that's kind of exciting. You know, you go into a project as a student and you assume you maybe know your end user because you, you intuit that the end user is like you and often that's not the case at all. So my goal is to try and help the student, you know, walk a mile in the shoes of the end user and design around that person's mental model of, of different tasks and their values and goals. In addition to that, you also have a lab of your own. I do. And that's not like a usual lab, not like a usual research lab where people are pipetting. I would say it's probably the most unusual lab in IMS. What is it like to run a biomedical communications research lab? What is it? Entail? It's great fun. Um, so my lab is focused again on, on developing visualization strategies for teaching really complex concepts. So I have one PhD student who's researching gaming as a strategy for teaching emergent properties of molecular environments, things like random motion, crowding, heat, temperature, all those things. Uh, I have other students who are looking at different interactive strategies for encouraging students to learn about these things. So placing them in inquiry-based learning environments where they have to experiment or using animation to assess their understanding. So they're they're working on a number, working on the same basic ideas of how to teach molecular biology, but they're all approaching it from different perspectives. And who are your, who's your audience? Who are your end users? Undergraduate students, high school students? Predominantly undergraduate students. We have, we're lucky that we have a captive audience out at uh, University of Toronto, Mississauga of undergraduate biology students. So most of our experiments uh, they participate in, which is really great because typically in this sort of research, the, the students who will test these, these tools are psychology students who have no interest whatsoever in the subject matter. And we try to be a little bit more authentic about our approach to the research in that the end, end user is also the audience that participates in the experiments. So what, what is an example of a, a project where the goal was to help the end user learn? The most recent experiment that we conducted was on an assessment tree that we had developed. So what this is, imagine um, an upside down tree where you ask a student a question and depending on how they respond to it, it would be a multiple choice question and depending on how they respond to it, it leads them to a different question. So it has this wide branching structure. And this is a text-based assessment tree. We designed it in order to try and better characterize students' misconceptions because we knew that they didn't understand a lot of really core foundational concepts in molecular biology, but we couldn't figure out why they didn't understand them. And this assessment tree has been really helpful in highlighting the nuances of, of these misconceptions. So we've run this assessment with over 1,000 students so far, and, and we've highlighted some really interesting findings. For example, students do understand randomness, but they think that Molecules are only moving randomly if they've got nothing better to do with their time. The minute there is a sort of a, a binding process or a cascade involved, there's a big tractor beam that pulls them in, or they have some sort of innate knowledge that tells them what to do. So they only understand these concepts at a very, very basic level. So what we did, this assessment tree is text-based, it's not visual. So one of my students this year developed animations for each of the questions and each of the responses. And we hypothesized that if students saw their misconceptions visualized, they would choose bet they would make better choices. That's brilliant. 
So we, we visualized all the misconceptions and we thought, this is, this is going to work. This is really going to work. And what we found was frightening, but really exciting. The animations actually bolstered their misconceptions. Oh, really? The students who were exposed to the animated version of the tree performed more poorly than the students who were exposed to the text only. So what does that mean? What it means is that animations are very persuasive. You watch something and because it's well animated, you assume that it's true, whether or not it is. So we need to be very assiduous in how we use animations. We need to make very careful choices, and we need to embed additional teaching tools with them in order to make them more successful. It doesn't mean that animation is bad. It's just that under certain circumstances, it can be dangerous. And I think if used correctly, and if cited correctly, and, and I think you, you know where I'm going with this. Oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> uh, an animation can certainly be useful, right? If, if the end user knows that, oh, this is actually based in fact, it's based in science, and it's not just a pretty picture. That's right. And that, that's actually one of our goals of our lab is to um, establish some standards for visual communication in our community. And one project that we're developing, it's called Canvas. It's the Citation and Annotation uh, Visualization Integration System. What essentially Canvas will do, we're just at the early stages now, will allow, it will afford developers of animations, interactive tools, illustrations, a mechanism for integrating citations into their work. So in other words, if you were to create an animation, you would be able to provide additional information about which PDB models you used, how the environment itself was informed. Was it based upon speculation or was it based upon empirical research? And then the end user in watching that animation on YouTube will be able to understand exactly how that animation was informed. I mean, we have a similar system for literature. Whenever you read a paper, you have a list of citations that are embedded in it. This is a way of embedding citations within visual media to increase the credibility of visual media. I was reading the, the Nature Methods paper that you yes. published that these guidelines are based on. And one thing that stuck out at me was the line that said that illustrations have just as many citations, if not more, than a regular research manuscript, a regular paper. And uh, that didn't make sense to me. Well, when you consider the complexity of any visual imagery, it contains many different components. Imagine even a simple model, an animated model of a molecule. The texture on the molecule might be informed by scientific evidence. The actual PD model, PDB model of the molecule would be informed by additional evidence. I by PDB, uh, what do you mean? Sorry, I mean protein data bank. Okay. So uh, many, many animators derive models from this database. Also, let's imagine that that molecule is going through a conformational change. Every step of that change is informed either by the literature or by different models. And then the environment that that molecule sits in, and let's say it's a uh, membrane receptor, the way that the lipids behave and the population of the entire environment, those are all based upon different citations. So one single image could have 20, 30 citations associated with and it. And it's fascinating how that number probably balloons when you think about a 30-second animation. That's exactly right. Yeah, then you're thinking of every other element within the environment, relative sizes, relative population, behaviors of all those, uh, all those entities. I think our brains are really good at consolidating all this visual information, and I think that sometimes makes things a little bit too simple. We, we sometimes think that something just sort of happens organically, and we don't really consider all the different properties that you're describing. Actually, you're making a really good point, that we, we devote a tremendous amount of brain power to resolving visuals. 
and we do it pretty efficiently. And as a result, we tend to look at it rather superficially, and we don't we don't think about uh, how a certain action occurs or how a certain behavior uh, happens. And it sounds like part of your job then is to kind of fight against what a user's brain would kind of do, right? The processes that the brain would go through to kind of to try to make sense of the image, right? And perhaps wrongly draw some conclusions uh, about the image, about the illustration, right? So you're kind of saying, no, no, this is what we want you to focus on, right? This is what we know. This is what we don't know. This part of the image is based on speculation, and this is the missing component. That's, that's right. And, and what we don't know is as important as what we do know. I mean, there's so much uncertainty, and I think it's really important that readers, viewers understand uncertainty, and that is so difficult for students. Students want answers to everything. They want everything to be carved in stone and to convince them that there is a lot of uncertainty out there is if we can get past that single challenge, I think the students would be far better for it. And I think that's why a lot of students go into science because they feel that it's neatly packaged. There's always an answer and there's very little uncertainty, right? And you go further along they get. That's right. There's so many questions that need to be answered. The more you start answering some questions. So what's the reception been like to this paper, to these guidelines that you're trying to propose? Has the international community, either within the, the medical illustration community or within the scientific community more broadly, have they responded to this? Have you received criticism or acclaim or comments, all of the above? Well, we've, we've received a bit of both. I would say from the visualization community, there is certainly concern around the amount of effort it would take. If you're working in a studio, an industry, and you're on a tight timeline, how much effort is it going to involve to embed these things? So right away, there's a red flag. We need to be really careful to make sure that it's something that can be integrated into the workflow of a busy studio as uh, seamlessly as possible. I think in the academic community, uh, there's been a positive reception and a recognition that something like this is much needed. You know, you go to YouTube and you can see thousands of videos of various things, but the only commentary on it is is from the audience, and there's nothing that actually describes the process by which something was developed. Yeah, I don't know if you can find that in a, a slew of YouTube comments. No, I know. It'll be like, awesome molecule right. guy. It's really interesting because when we write papers, when we're crafting sentences, we got to make sure we, we say the right thing or if it's based on evidence. You would never, you would, you would never, never make think. a claim in a paper without supporting it. And you have, you're saying you have to think like that when you're absolutely when you're creating an animation or a visualization. And there's a reason for that. I mean, as we get further steeped in data, there's a further need, a much, much greater need for visualization in order to make the data understandable, but also to use visualization as a mechanism for developing insights about the data. But that's not going to happen until we increase the credibility of visualization itself. It really does sound like Dr. Jenkinson's lab is very unusual for the IMS. And I actually had a chance to sit down with one of her students, Matan Burson. Uh, So Matan, you're a second year student in the BMC program. Uh, And I guess my first question would be generally, what made you decide to pursue this particular route? Well, um, I was going to go into medicine. I was really mm-hmm. um, gung-ho about becoming a surgeon. And while I was studying for the MCAT, I discovered uh, the program. And I realized that I could actually combine my love for arts and design with the medicine. Uh, and on top of that, add in technology. Mm-hmm. And just the idea of being able to combine all these arts um, and sciences and the things I love um, in one profession, I knew that was the right thing for me. 
Very cool. Definitely sounds like the right fit. So you did say you were interested in going into medicine. So I would assume you have a background in the sciences um, in terms of education. But I was wondering, when did art become such a big part of your life? Or has it always been something you were pursuing or interested in? Yeah, I'd say it was more of the latter. Art has been part of my life since I was a child. I had grandparents who were painting, an uncle who was a professional painter. And Mm. growing up in my childhood, in my um, house, I would I was always drawing, competing mm. with my brothers who could draw, you know, Sonic the Hedgehog better. And so I'd say art came first and um, the science and technology came later on. Came second. Okay. Mm-hmm. So you're about halfway through the program. So how is it measuring up to your expectations so far? <laughs> is um, it different from what you were hoping or looking for or is it exactly what you needed? <laughs> I think a bit that, of both. Um, yeah, it's a bit of both. Mm-hmm. I definitely have found things that I've enjoyed mm-hmm. uh, in the program that I didn't think I was going to enjoy. For example, designing the layouts for applications and doing more of the use, looking at the, more the user experience mm-hmm. in applications. Um, I thought coming into the program, I'd be more uh, wanting to uh, just illustrate and paint. But I realized that in the program, there's a lot of room to design um, applications. Mm-hmm. And I found that a lot of gratification in that. That's awesome. And the question all grad students dread, what do you hope to achieve once you graduate from the BMC? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I'm kind of collecting a bunch of skills from the program now, Mm -hmm. and I want to work in as a UX uh, designer, so as a user Mm -hmm. experience designer Mm -hmm. with apps that are specific for science education. Mm -hmm. So if you can imagine apps that you might use on the computer or on your phone to Mm -hmm. learn a specific subject, I think those need to be designed well so that mm. students you know feel engaged and motivated to use and I want to make those engaging mm-hmm. and positive learning experiences for them. Uh, I think that's a really nice segue into uh, your research with Jody. so mm-hmm. I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about that and what you do in her lab. Sure so in um, her lab they really look into we look at novel ways that we can visualize difficult concepts for students um, in life sciences. And what I'm doing is I'm creating uh, an interactive app for organic chemistry students mm-hmm. that uses the pretty new technology of augmented reality mm-hmm. to help students connect the 2D representations of molecules. Mm-hmm. For example, the diagrams and the chemical formulas that they usually see on exams and lectures mm-hmm. and connect those with the 3D properties like the pro- the mm-hmm the angles and the bonds and the things that you really have to think about in your head and visualize. And um, I found when I was an organic chemistry student Mm -hmm. studying that there was a lot of challenging parts in the course where you had to understand what does something actually look like Mm -hmm. in 3D space as opposed to a 2D illustration. And so my uh, mobile app is going to be connecting, Mm -hmm. uh, helping students connect the two representations. And what Jody and I, as well as our the content advisor, mm-hmm. who's an organic chemistry professor at UTM, mm-hmm. uh, Jumi Shin, uh, we're all planning to do a study in the new year that will mm-hmm. compare groups of students using the app with augmented reality, mm-hmm. um, groups of students that use the app without augmented reality, and mm-hmm. groups of students who use the traditional yeah. methods of studying, such as the uh, molecular uh, model sets. Yeah. And compare how do they um, do fare against each other. 
to clarify, what exactly is augmented reality? Because um, I know virtual reality. <laughs> right. So augmented reality is, I'd say it's one of those things that you really have to um, see to understand the best. Mm-hmm. Um, but with words, I'll try to explain yeah. it. Paint us uh, a picture. <laughs> so you can imagine um, something like the Google Glass mm-hmm. where you would be seeing the world in front of you mm-hmm. but for the person who's wearing the glass the glasses mm-hmm. they see something overlaid on top of that world okay. so it's as if the, their reality mm-hmm. is augmented by yeah. the technology they're able to see something more mm-hmm. um, once they have the glasses on and uh, with this uh, mobile app uh, what I'm planning to do is when a student points the mobile camera Mm -hmm. at a flashcard which has a 2D representation Mm -hmm. then on their phone they'll actually see a 3D model of that same molecule superimposed on the model Mm -hmm. on the flashcard but they won't actually that won't actually exist in real life it'll only be on the screen and I know you said you have a content advisor who's a professor of organic chemistry at UTM but I was wondering if you had any thoughts about how generally academics and professors will Uh, react to incorporating this type of technology in the classroom and if you feel there's any resistance or if they're ready to embrace it (laughs) with open (laughs) arms um well i say i'd say that based on the different professors that i've talked to over Mm -hmm. the last year it really depends on on the individual uh some professors that i've talked to have really been enthusiastic about it Mm -hmm. and have wanted to um, help me along the way because they Mm -hmm. realize that this is how it's they can engage students and how yeah. students would be more motivated. But other, other professors that I've talked to seem to be more inclined to stick with the ways that they're used to. Yeah. And I'm not so sure how they would be, what they would think about in terms of incorporating an mm-hmm. app. You know, yeah. most people, like students being on their phone during class in or class, after class. Exactly, yeah. Okay, well, it definitely sounds like you have your work cut out for you there. And then best of luck with the trial that you're planning. Thank you. Yes, I'll need that. So just to kind of zoom out a little bit, um, how did you get involved with Dr. Jenkinson's lab in the first place? Um, Well, I would say that I approached her last year once I started coming up with different ideas for a master's research project. And I knew that Jody's lab focuses on creating new strategies Mm -hmm. um, and new techniques. And um, since I knew that I was going to work with augmented reality and a mobile app, I thought Mm -hmm. that she would be a great fit for that. So it sounds to me like part of your narrative at some point... Because you come from a liberal arts background. I do. So science is, is kind of not your uh, your first love. So how did that come to be? So how did you get to be interested in science and, and ultimately pursue the degree uh, at the BMC? That was a long, convoluted journey. But I, I think some students, when they're in high school, when they're in secondary school, manage to balance science, art, music, all of those things. I was not one of those students. And I felt that I had to make a choice. So I focused on the humanities, and I focused on art, as much as I was interested in science. And I realized about six years out of my undergraduate degree in French literature and art history that something was missing. And uh, through a series of events and circumstances involving family illness and thinking a lot about patient education and how it was lacking, I decided to apply to the BMC program. So my first interest was in communicating science to the lay public and patient education. How did you find out about the BMC program? 
Did you know that you could combine art and science together at that time? No. And I think, you know, I wish I could go to every high school in the country and tell students this. You can do both. I was at my doctor's office, and I was complaining about how patient education was sorely lacking. And he looked at me and said, well, why don't you do something about it then? You're an artist. And he showed me all of these um, netter pieces because he had studied at U of T in the U of T program, and he showed me, uh, he pulled out the Netter Atlas and showed me all these illustrations, and I couldn't believe that you could do both. So the very next day, literally the very next day, I applied to BMC. Wow. At the time, did you feel that the science was inaccessible to you, that there would be way too much that would be over your head that you'd have to learn in order to make the animations accurate? I did. I did, absolutely. And I took a number of science courses as well. You know, I took undergraduate physiology, I took um, cell biology, histology, anatomy, all of these things to prepare myself. And again, my, at that time, I wasn't actually, I'd come from a background in animation because I'd worked in an animation studio for a few years, but I was really interested in interactive technology. So, you know, I've gone from spending years working in interactive technology, I'm coming back to animation now, and now I'm going back to interactive technology. I realized that it's never one or the other, it's always a combination of both. And it's so funny because with the setup that you have in your lab, you could effectively run an animation studio. You know, you could one day decide, hey, we're gonna make some cartoons or something like hey, that. Hey, that's a good idea. I could monetize my lab. Right. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> you know, if, if, uh, if you're ever having a bad CIHR year, that's right. Just sell some cartoons on the side. Actually, this year we did create a series of uh, guidelines or principles for medical animators um, to help them better understand molecular environments and, and the behavior of uh, molecular entities. And so we're publishing that series of 12 visualization principles. They're based upon uh, the Disney animation principles because in life you have things like gravity and different forces having an impact that at a molecular level they have no relevance whatsoever. So we've taken those principles and sort of reinvented them for molecular animators. The Disney animation principles? Well, what we've said is, you know, these principles may apply in creating engaging animations, but they can also be very dangerous because a molecule falling in a molecular space does not have the same arc and bounce as a ball does in, in the real world. So principles like squash and stretch don't have the same sort of relevance in, in molecular environments. Right. The work that you're doing in your lab right now, are the ideas yours, the ideas the students, or do you have, are you consulting for companies, for departments? They say, we need Department of Biology, for example. We have some students coming, based on the evaluations, they found this topic hard. Could you create some sort of visualization that could enhance their learning for this topic. Is this how it works in your lab? Like, is this where the, how did the ideas come? Ah, well, to date, the work has been a collaboration of everyone in my lab and also Gail McGill, who, whom I mentioned, who developed Molecular Maya. So we meet weekly, we discuss visualization challenges. And, and I guess it's important to separate the subject matter from the visualization strategies. So we think about things like visual complexity. How complex can an animation be before people cease to understand it? So it's based upon a body of literature in educational psychology on things like attention cueing and guiding attention and focus. So that's the visualization part of, part of the puzzle. The other part is the content. And we try to do things that are relevant 
to what's going on in undergraduate biology right now. And we have actually, um, we recently uh, received funding to develop a platform that we're calling BioLeap, Biology Engagement and Assessment Platform. And it's headed up by Michael Corrin, one of my colleagues. Uh, and it, it will look specifically at the undergraduate curriculum at UTM and on the downtown campus, and we'll be developing materials specifically for those students in those courses. But they'll be designed using what we've learned from our experiments to date and our ongoing studies and visualization. So for students in the program, it's more more than just artistic ability. Oh, yeah. Right? So 95% of the students who come into our program have an undergraduate degree in basic science. So not, not like yourself? Okay. No, no, I'm, I'm a rarity. In fact, I think if I were to apply to the program now, I wouldn't get in. I'm quite certain <laughs> about that. <laughs> so do people get in with an arts background and go the same route and just do some additional prerequisite science courses? It's unusual, it's unusual in this day and age because science has changed and advanced so much that students really have to have a solid foundation in the sciences in order to uh, enter the program and, and succeed in the program. And fortunately, a lot of these students enjoy drawing also. So they've, you know, they've since childhood drawn, you know, manga comics and things like right. that. So they're just really good artists, but they, their education has been in science. What actually makes the Toronto program unique is that there are, the faculty are also engaged in research. So while it is an applied professional program, the students see us doing research and they understand the mechanisms underlying what they're actually doing. They're not solving visualization problems without thinking about the efficacy of it, the impact of it. And they do a bit of research of their that's own. That's right, that's right. This year, I think seven of our students conducted research studies and, and wrote papers that they'll be publishing. And so it's a great experience for them. And they take that when they go out into the workforce. They're always thinking about thinking about learning objectives and thinking about the end user. So could you take us through the process of the master's research project in the oh, uh, BMC sure. program, like from conception to the end product? So the program, is, the BMC program is a two-year program. And students, we see very little of them during their, verse, their first term. They're immersed in anatomy. And so they, they study anatomy with the med students. So they're in the lab dissecting every day. And then when the med students go off to clinic, our students draw. So they... They do start by traditional means, and they draw. So their first term is, is spent doing that sort of thing. And then into the second term, we throw them headfirst into technology. They're studying interactive media, 3D animation, conceptual illustration using software applications like Photoshop and Illustrator. And, and it's always tied to specific subject matter. So they'll be taking a course in neuroanatomy with Cindy Mooreshead while they're focused on creating conceptual illustrations in neuroanatomy. So that their first year is heavily applied. At the end of their first year, they decide what their focus will be for their master's research project. And that begins then with a research methods course, which is pretty typical in any graduate program where they write a proposal. In the fall, they start focusing on actually developing the tool. So if they're, if they're focused more on linear narrative, they'll take a course in cinematic pre-production and design and storyboarding and learning about visual narrative. If they're focused on interactive technology, they'll create all the pre-production documents that go with that, things like a scope document and a wireframe and preliminary designs, all the while thinking about the end audience and how they're going to evaluate 
what it is they're developing. So if they're conducting an evaluation, then they might conduct an iterative evaluation throughout the whole process by meeting frequently with their audience and getting feedback and redesigning the program as they go, or a summative evaluation where they'll complete their design and then the following spring or summer they'll they'll conduct an assessment with their audience. That sounds incredibly immersive. It's really immersive, and the students, they, they, they look... They're pretty fatigued by the time they, they finish. We call it BMC boot camp. <laughs> but, you know, they're such a talented group of individuals, and they all do really well. And speaking of talent, I imagine that a ton of hard work goes into getting a degree from the BMC program. But in addition to that hard work, I imagine that there definitely has to be a certain amount of raw talent, certain aptitude for illustrator, uh, illustration or drawing or anything like that. But is that always the case or is that simply a misconception? And, and have you ever had to sit a student down and say, look, you're a really hard worker, but you can't draw? Um, that's a sensitive topic. I'm not sure. <laughs> I'm not sure how to address it. You know, there's a wide range of abilities in the program. And I think increasingly, there are those students who are exceptional illustrators or animators, and it really shows. And they will always rise to the top. But there are other students, while they may not have the same skill in drafting, that they are very good problem solvers. And they can develop programs that don't demand as much of them in terms of their rendering skills. As well with 3D technologies, a student who maybe has more difficulty illustrating might be able to create beautiful 3D models. And it's not that they're created automatically. It demands the same level of hard work. But... In a step-by-step process, the student can model something, light it, and experiment more so that they can they can reach that level of success through experimentation and design. So what's your supervisory style like then? So you seem very supportive. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a bit of a taskmaster. I, I predominantly supervise interactive media students. So I'll meet with them regularly to make sure that they're keeping on track. And I also challenge them to think outside the box. So you've developed your first solution. Is it the best solution or is there another way to go about doing this? Throw it out, start over, try something new. And so students in my lab will go through many, many iterations of design before they land upon something. And it's wonderful to look at that trajectory. It's really exciting. And hopefully they appreciate it. (laughs) When, When they graduate, I think you know, I've, I've received feedback from students that they really, they, they appreciate their experience at BMC and the attention to detail. So another really fun fact about you, Matan, is that you actually designed the Raw Talk logo. It's true. Um, <laughs> so can you tell me a little bit about that process and what it takes to design a great logo and kind of how you got to the final product? Sure. So... I would say that the process I went through in uh, helping create the Raw Talk logo mm-hmm. is something a similar process that mm-hmm. I apply to all of my projects. And uh, first, it always starts with research. Of course. So <laughs> um, I wanted to understand uh, who was the Raw Talk team, like uh, what was the vision, yeah. what did they really want, and so I. Um, kind of ran a mini interview with you guys and tried to understand what it was that you're looking for, what did you want the audience to see, like mm-hmm. hear, and how did you want them to think about you. And um, once I, did, I got that, I moved on to the next stage, which would be mm-hmm. to kind of come up with ideas mm-hmm. based on the knowledge that I gained yeah. from talking to you guys. 
And so I've created like a mind map and I came up with different symbols mm -hmm. that uh, would be attributed to things such as community or academia or discussions mm -hmm. and science, all things that I thought um, the Raw Talk mm -hmm. uh, podcast uh, had in its vision. Mm -hmm. And I ended up sketching different ideas and finally, based off of those, came up with a few concepts that uh, I showed mm -hmm. the, the team and um, we decided on the one that we liked the best. That's awesome. It definitely sounds very scientific when you describe it that way, <laughs> which is surprising because in my mind, it's this art thing that happens and you get mm -hmm. the final product. But it's cool to see the, that they really look the same in a lot of ways. So just to wrap up, I was wondering if you wanted to share with our listeners any um, like website or socials or any accounts where if people are interested in seeing more of your work, where they could find it. Sure. So anyone who's interested in seeing uh, how the process worked for coming up with a Raw Talk uh, logo or, for example, if they wanted to see more about my master's research project, um, I'd direct them to my website, matanberson.com. Mm -hmm. uh, Great. And, we'll throw um, it up on the blog too, so make sure to check that out. Yes. Great. So thank you so much for your time again, and uh, best of luck in all your future endeavors. Thank you for having me. <laughs> so my name is Kat, and this was Ask a Student. Now back to the podcast. So given that a lot of your research focuses on improving learning outcomes, I imagine that you're sometimes constrained by the methodology. You mentioned that you would look at something like eye tracking, but do you have any plans to maybe incorporate other technologies such as neuroimaging in seeing how students learn? Yeah, you just set me up and I'll be there. Yeah, that would be amazing, actually. Uh, we Part of our, our um, agenda in our research lab is to develop new methodologies for assessing, in particular, interactive media and, well, and also animation. So, for example... Uh, my student who is working in gaming is using uh, telemetry data. So she's able to track every single mouse movement and click and time spent on task. Um, and she's also starting to look at facial expression and reading that in order to understand level of engagement. Uh, we're also thinking about using eye tracking to measure cognitive load, of all things. Uh, for example, pupil fixation is a good indicator of... of uh, cognitive load. Pupil fixation? Pupil. Oh, yeah, pupil, pupil fixation. So if the pupil is dilated, there is increased cognitive load. But I would love, love, love to do some imaging with the audience while they're watching an animation and try and figure out on a range of expertise from the novice learner to the expert learner, which parts of the brain are activated when they watch complex animations. Is that a dream project of yours? That's a dream project. Are you going to set it up for me? You're I gonna, would love You're going to make it happen? Well, we got to find some neuroimaging specialists. And no, that would be fantastic. Do you have any other projects in mind if, say, funding weren't an issue? If you could do anything. If I could do anything. Actually, if I could do anything and funding weren't an issue, I would set up a center for visualization that in invited researchers and practitioners from different disciplines to work together. So the mathematicians, the computer scientists, the biologists, the chemists, the visualization designers, all of these people working together on projects. I think the nature of research, particularly in basic science, is becoming so much more interdisciplinary and cross-disciplinary that I would love to be able to work with a larger collective of people from, from different domains. And the common goal would be to be able to visualize what they're studying? Yeah, or and also to yep, and also to develop 
more impactful visualizations that can actually be used to, to drive exploration and drive research. I wouldn't be surprised if something like that were going on right now in, say, the Google Labs. I think you're probably right. They're definitely in the business of trying to figure out, you know, what, what attracts people to certain things and mm -hmm. who's looking at what kind of content and, and how do they learn, how do they respond to it. What's working, what's not. Yeah, and that, that would be tremendous. There was a researcher years ago called Francis Dwyer who had a research program where he looked at different, you know, whether something was photorealistic or schematic, and, and he worked with thousands upon thousands of people. It was a really big research program. But the stimuli that he used were so bad. They were just so poorly designed. For example, the schematic drawing looked like it was drawn by a five-year-old. So it wasn't drawn with understanding in mind. The photograph was not a good photograph, and it wasn't even shot from the same perspective as the schematic illustration. So it, these were illustrations of the heart, the interior of the heart. And they're, they're, the variables differed too much in order to really compare them. I would love to reproduce his study, but using better visual, uh, visual stimuli. And I, I'd love to do that with so many experiments that I've seen where, you know, the results are compelling, but the stimuli suck, which makes you really question the results. Compelling stimuli. No, compelling research, sucky stimuli. Yeah, sucky stimuli. Yeah. Uh, so what do we hope to see coming out, coming out of your lab in the next year or so? Well, our next big project is this uh, citation integration system. We'll be working on that uh, as well. Uh, I'm going to be applying for funding to develop the assessment tree further, but develop it as a learning environment with integrated scaffolds and try and really think about how we can blur the line between assessment and learning so that on one hand, instructors can understand where their students are running into misconceptions and then on the other side of the same coin, students can uh, use these tools to learn. Would you suggest that even the instructors could incorporate this in their lectures? Hey guys, let's just take a break yep. and see how well you understood what I just talked about. Yeah. And just as a form of learning for them in class. Absolutely. As well. I think that kind of embedded assessment and learning is, is needed. You know, no, no one enjoys sitting through an hour long lecture without contributing to it in some way. It's a fascinating time to be a student. I'm, I'm really excited to see how things like illustration and animation are going to change the classroom or add to the classroom dynamic. Yeah, I, I imagine, you know, learning, learning from e-books where it, illustrations are no longer static, but you're, you're in, you know, using interactive displays, videos, animations while you're while at the same time reading and combining all of those modalities. That's pretty powerful stuff. Do you have any advice for students who are maybe primarily uh, in the sciences, but have some interest in illustration? They should come and see us. Well, our doors are always open. We encourage students to visit us if they have any illustration at all to, to bring the visual media to us, and we can advise them on how to further develop their work. You know, it, the, the big thing about getting into our program is the motivation to get in. It's a difficult program, and so we really want to encourage students to succeed if they're passionate about becoming practicing medical illustrators. What's the difference between one student who flourishes in the program and makes the most out of the program and one that just gets by and gets the degree at the end of the day? That's a great question. I was recently preparing my tenure dossier and looking at all the students I'd supervised, and I've supervised well over 30 students in, in the past several years. The student who gets by maybe gets a satisfactory job somewhere and then 
may discover at some point that the satisfactory job isn't what they want, and they either go into a different discipline or, you know, we've had students come through BMC and then they go into medicine or they go into law, but the students who really want this and who really excel do so well. I mean, they, they get fantastic, exciting jobs and uh, they really flourish. Um, their work gets lots of attention and uh, you, it's wonderful to see them develop as young professionals. And, and they're usually the students that spend the most time on site every day. They're there every day. They come to your office frequently to ask advice, to, to get feedback on pieces, even if you're not the instructor teaching the course. And they value that feedback and they recognize the value of it and take that with them when they go into the profession. So hard work looks pretty much the same in any discipline. You bet. And it's, it gets noticed by everyone. Everyone's paying attention. Yeah, it's, you know, it, it, it never fails. Those students who work the hardest, succeed the most, and receive the most accolades. It's, it's a pretty simple recipe. I think the team also matters too. You're working really hard, but you have, you're getting the right feedback, you're getting the right push, the right guidance, and you're open to criticism, and you provide that constructive criticism. Yeah, and I, I think that the students who work really hard have greater expectations of their supervisors, and we all feel a tremendous responsibility there. Um, if a student is willing to put in the time that we want, we want to really help them succeed. Well, it's been an absolute pleasure to sit down with you and learn more about your work. I know that we only previously have known each other through the curriculum committee. So to ask you these questions and, and learn about your journey has been very interesting. Where can people find you? They can find me either in the woods out at UTM with my dog <laughs> feeding the deer or in my office uh, at UTM. And they can always find me at my website, ScienceViz. That's vizwithns.ca. Thanks for being on the show. Thank you guys so very much. much. Raw Talk is a student presentation of the Institute of Medical Science at the University of Toronto. The opinions expressed on the show are not necessarily those of the IMS, the Faculty of Medicine, or the University. To learn more about the show, visit our website at rawtalkpodcast.com and be sure to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Raw Talk Podcast. Also, don't forget to subscribe on iTunes and rate us five stars. Until next time, keep it raw. No, I know. It'll be like, awesome molecule guy. Right.